I do want to share some things with you, though, about maybe my generation a little bit and this upcoming generation, Gen Z. Uh, uh, some, some harrowing facts about what it's like to live in this world today. Uh, today we're in James, James chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 9 to start. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to turn there. Uh, there is a very real sense in which Jesus came to this earth and started to flip everything on its head. Uh, you see this a lot with his interactions with the disciples and um, their expectations of, if somebody wrongs me, I'm going to wrong them back. And Jesus is like, no, that's not how it works. And the good news is, if somebody created the world, they probably know how it works, right? And so God's going to continue that through James here in James 1.9. He's going to start to flip things on its head. I'm calling this uh, message the Great Reversal uh, because things are being flipped. Things are being reversed from how we normally expect them and imagine them to be. And so uh, there, there's a sense in this world that we live where we have to be successful. We have to have money. We have to have beauty. And we have to have good work. These are things that define basically who we believe that we are. And I have to tell you, it's having an effect on my generation and the next generation. Did you know that Gen Z is the most depressed generation in recorded history? Did you know that anxiety has recently been uh, moved to number one, the number one mental health issue in the United States? Uh, There is some real uh, problems here. Uh, with the way that we've set ourselves up. I think that this is perpetuated mostly by social media and mostly by trying to attain these statuses that we see put out there. We have to look beautiful. We have to have money and go on these crazy vacations. We have to um, be able to get a good career, which is really hard for some millennials. Um, We have to achieve these things. We have to work in these areas, and then, then we'll be fulfilled, and that will define it. But when when that doesn't meet, when we're not fulfilled and we use the world standards of here's where I'm exalted and here's where I'm fulfilled, then it doesn't work out. I graduated from Biola University. Uh, woo, one person, apathetically, thank you. Um, really enjoyed my time there. Uh, they, have a, they have a survey every year uh, among the university of just college students. UCLA puts a survey out and they have... Um, yeah, they take a toll, and this, this survey, published in 2016 to 17, used 1,672 students. At Biola University, which is a Christian university, conservative, um, Bible-believing, the future of our church, um, or our church currently, I guess. Uh, yeah, this is Biola University, so these stats are not like people who are not walking with the Lord. These are people who have said they are walking with the Lord and sign the contract saying they are. <laughs> they, they have to, it's true. Um, hospital admissions for suicidal teenagers doubled between 2006 and 2016. Doubled. Uh, some of these stats from Biola are pretty intense. 24% of the 1,672 students surveyed said anxiety affected their academic performance. said they had felt anxious. 60% of students said they had felt depressed. 60%. of students said they had felt hopeless within the last year. Christians whose only hope is in Jesus have felt hopeless. 50% of students. 
8% or 133 people, souls, said they had seriously considered suicide in the last year. 8%, 133 people. Although this message isn't about mental health specifically, I do think that needs to be a conversation. I'm just going to use this to illustrate there is a serious weight on us today in America. Uh, Expectations that we're not fulfilling and ways we think the world needs to work and we're not achieving. Um, When we use the world's standards and the world's measures and we don't measure up, it's going to impact us. And so here we have in James a different standard and a different measure, a reversal of this standard and this measure. We're going to be looking at where value lies in the kingdom of God, not merely in the world. So now with a little bit of this in mind, do any of you ever struggle to introduce yourself to somebody? Like somebody comes up to you and they're like, who are you? Like, what do you do? Or describe yourself to me. And the things that come to your mind, you're like, that doesn't make sense. I don't know if I should say that. I have two cats. Probably shouldn't have led with that. Um, it's, hard to, uh, it's hard to begin this conversation and try to describe yourself um, because there's so many things that go into that. Uh, you'll usually introduce your, your name, and um, you'll start to describe what you do for work or for a job. Uh, a lot of people will include a hobby. Uh, and so for me, it would be like, my name is AJ. I'm a pastor. Usually the conversation ends there. Um, and uh, I love playing hockey. Um, and then if I tell them it's roller hockey, the conversation ends again. It's like, it's not ice. And they're like, oh, sorry. Um, these ways to describe ourselves are not how we describe ourselves in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, our descriptions of ourselves should be children of God whose identity is found solely in him. Our identity cannot be found in what we do or who we think we are, but who God knows we are and what we do in his kingdom. There are lots of trials and difficulties in the life of a Christian. But if our identity and foundation is found in Jesus and him alone, then these trials will be mere hiccups in our life as Christians. Verse 9, James 1. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Cool. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Why would James say this? We know that the lowly brother is low. He just said he's lowly. Let him boast in his exaltation. He's lowly. He's not exalted, James. Are you confused? Let him boast in his exaltation. Doesn't really make sense. Unless you're using God's standards. So point number one in your worship folder, for those of you that haven't pre-filled it, It says, don't allow the world to determine your value. Use God's standards. Don't allow the world to determine your value. Use God's standards. Some young people in this room who don't have a house, don't have a career, don't have uh, their own family yet, um, it can be saddening in this area where we're trying to use the world standards of like, I guess I'm not a real person yet if I don't have those things. Uh, That's not what Jesus says. Jesus desires people to come after him, to give up everything they have and to find their worth and value in him. Not in these things that the world says is good. The likely uh, lowly people that James is referring to in this section are more likely than not, Jewish Christians who have literally lost everything because they left Judaism. Uh, 
In this culture, if you leave Judaism, you leave the temple, you leave business from the temple, you leave school at the temple, you leave friends, family. They won't talk to you. And so now work is difficult, relationships are difficult, um, schooling is difficult, and you're pretty much isolated from the rest of society. These lowly people were quite literally lowly in their society because they didn't have an outlet to do any of these things they wanted to do because they had left Judaism. They weren't Jews anymore. And so they're brought low. They're viewed as lowly. Not merely in the society, but also in their own eyes. They see themselves, I can't provide for my family. I can't set up a stable education. We lost our friends. We lost our family. Where is my value? And these people were lowly. They didn't see life in Christ as having value. But James flips that on its head right away and says, let you boast in your exaltation. Even reading this today, you're like, that, that's the opposite, James. The lowly are not exalted. That's the definitions of the words. That's not how it works. But what James is getting at is, look, you people who are lowly, who don't have the means to support yourself, who don't have what the world deems as good enough, you should praise the Lord because you are exalted. You don't have the distractions that the rich have. You don't have the fallbacks that the rich have. Your only reliance is on Jesus Christ. And praise God for that. Praise God you don't have the distractions. We're talking about riches and, and poor people. The first story that probably comes into your mind is the rich young ruler. You think of Jesus' interaction with this guy uh, in the Gospels where this guy comes up to him and he's like, Lord, what must I do to be saved? He's like, I have kept all the commandments from birth, and I am following God. And Jesus says, great. So all that you have, give it to the poor, and then you will have eternal life. And this guy's like, I'm not going to do that. And he walks away sad. The disciples are questioning. They're like, is this what it takes? Do we have to sell all that we have? And Peter's like, look, Lord, we have left houses and families. And Jesus is like, it is difficult for a rich person to enter into the eye, to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It is more difficult for a camel to enter to the eye of a needle. I messed that up. We're good. Uh, <laughs> we'll come back. Uh, point is, uh, richness, wealth, is a difficult distraction in the kingdom of God. You can buy things that will alleviate your pain and your trials, although not everything. And in this way, you're not relying on Jesus. You're not relying on the God that you claim to serve because your fallback is your riches. Your fallback is your status. Uh, Again, I think in this world today, it's wealth, it's beauty, and it's success. Um, We look at people like um, Bill Gates, who have millions of dollars. We look at uh, models who get paid to be the way that they were born. Um, and we look at, we look at professional athletes who are receiving millions of dollars, like Mike Trout. Um, he deserves it. He's the best player in baseball. Um, yeah. These people, though, do not, do not find fulfillment in those things. There's recorded quotes. You can just look on the internet and just type in, like, wealth and happiness and watch as rich person after rich person is like this did not fulfill me this did not satisfy do not pursue this i have had so many down moments uh look at lottery winners more often than not you hear stories of how 
sad and depressed they are because of this. Their, their uh, world standards did not fulfill what they thought it would. 1 Timothy 6.17 is there in your notes. Uh, Paul here addressing Timothy, a young pastor uh, in the church in Ephesus, is basically trying to uh, communicate with him what he should be doing with some of these people in the church. And he says this, um, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Don't allow the rich people to set their hope in their riches and their material wealth, but rather remind them to set their eyes on God. Remind them that God should be their sole foundation, their sole place that they find fulfillment. It shouldn't be in their riches. It shouldn't be in their social status. It shouldn't be in their appearance. Rather, it should be in God. This theme in Scripture of the the low will be exalted and the high will be humbled is pretty much a constant theme. We see uh, in the Psalms this. We see in the prophets this. We see Jesus communicating this. And we see it here again in James. uh, that The people who we deem as they've got it together do not. And the people that we see as they need help are actually in a better position in the kingdom of God. That the humble people are actually in a better position, better set up for God's success. We see it again at the end of uh, the end of your Bible in the book of Revelation, Revelation two nine. Uh, John is speaking to the church in Smyrna, and they've got some. Sorry, Jesus through John is speaking to the church in Smyrna, and they've got some difficulties they're dealing with. And uh, John says this: "I know your tribulation and your poverty." And in parentheses he says, "But you are rich." These people who saw themselves as having it together. Jesus looks at them and says, I know your poverty. And the people are probably like, what? And Jesus here again, speaking of spiritual poverty, spiritual poverty of saying, you don't have it all together. Although you think you can buy your way out of anything, you have not bought your way out of the coming wrath and judgment coming from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They might have thought they were rich, but they were oh so poor and oh so pitiable. There's a story of um, an army general who sat down one day with the chaplain, and they were having lunch in the mess room. Um, they're communicating, they're talking, and the chaplain's kind of sitting there by himself, as sometimes pastors do uh, when in situations like that, because uh, people feel awkward. And so he's sitting there, and the general looks over at him, and he's like, I should just humor him and have a conversation. He's like, hey, pastor, can you tell me something? pastor's like, sure, I can tell you something. And he's like, can you tell me, uh, what will heaven be like? And he said, I can tell you one thing, general, that in heaven you will not be a general. This general's uh, status, his, his um, fulfillment was found in essentially being this leader. And the pastor, the chaplain here, was basically saying, it's not going to be like that in heaven. This isn't going to last forever. The, the status that you've earned, that you've attained, the wealth you've accumulated and the respect that you have, it won't last forever. And so now as Christians, we should be thinking, what will last forever, Jesus? What is going to be worth investing in that is going to last forever? 
And it's not going to be your wealth. It's not going to be your status. It's going to be your pursuit of Christ, your sincere pursuit of Christ above all else. In honesty, coming before him and allowing him to determine your steps, not trying to do it on your own, not trying to solve all your problems on your own, but, but allowing Jesus to work in you and through you. This is something I tell the youth all the time. I think in our culture, it's so easy to look at people and say, wow, you're needy. That's not good. When the first thing that Jesus says about man is that it's not good that he should be alone. You are designed to be needy. You are designed to need fellowship. You are designed by God to need him. And if you try to fulfill your life without him, you will feel empty. You will not feel fulfilled and you will struggle. You will be humbled. Your value lies in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Let the lowly one be exalted, James says. Let him boast in his exaltation. Because even though you see him as small, even though you see him as little, as not having value in the kingdom of God, he is exalted. He is exalted. Don't be distracted by the lies of the enemy. Rather, place your hope in God. Place your hope in God. Not a secure future. Not a solid retirement. Not trying to be worry-free. But placing your hope in Jesus alone. Verse 10. And the rich in his humiliation, let him boast in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Point number two. God measures wealth and poverty in a very different way than us. God measures wealth and poverty in a very different way than us. He doesn't use our standards of value. He doesn't use our standards of good enough. And praise God that he doesn't, because that is very unattainable for most of us. I am not going to be a professional baseball player. I can barely hit 300 in softball. James uh, continues this um, great reversal in saying the rich person, the high one, will be humbled and let him boast in that. Let him boast in his humiliation as God takes away things from him to draw him closer to himself. Uh, Later on in James, in, in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, we'll see that this community had several rich people in it, several people who were well off. And as naturally happens when you see people who are well off or who have attained your social status of fulfillment, they looked at them and they said, wow, those people have got it all together. And James is already starting this letter by saying, no, they don't. They don't. They should boast when they're humbled because this is not a good place for them to be where they don't rely on God, where they don't need him. Some of us, uh, the end of verse 10 sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? As you read that, you probably are like hearkened back to an earlier section in Scripture uh, in the book of Isaiah. It's already in your notes, actually, so you probably are like, yeah, there it is. Isaiah 40, verses 6b through 8. Isaiah 40, verses 6b through 8. James is drawing on this illustration. It's actually used a couple more times in Scripture, but most um, earliest here in Isaiah. And so... Here's what Isaiah uh, 40, verses 6 through 8 say. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, 
the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Here in Isaiah, even, he's saying, look, your life, basically using the grass of saying this, your life is going to fade away. It's not going to last forever. The grass will wither. You are going to age. You are going to fade away. But what will last forever, what is worth investing in, is the word of God. James borrows this from Isaiah and saying, look, there is a place where we do find value in the community of believers. And that place is in the kingdom of God. If we are placing our value here, if we are storing up treasures here on earth, it will not last, it will spoil, and it won't bring fulfillment. Ultimately, you'll be sitting there with your treasures thinking, man, I wish I had spent more time in prayer. I wish I had spent more time in the community of God. I wish I had spent more time investing in the young ones, investing in other believers' lives. I wish that's what I had done with my time two things that you never hear old people, older people say, um, that they wish that they had spent less time with their children and that they wish they would have spent less time praying. You never hear them saying that. Why? Because as people get toward the end of their life, they realize the power of prayer and the necessity of prayer. The necessity of spending time with their children and the impact that has on them. Where your investment is, is really important. Now, this is awfully relatable. Uh, like a flower of grass, you will pass away. Verse 11 says this. It says, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. We have something like this in Southern California. It's called the Santa Ana Winds. And we know full well that if you do not water your plants twice a day during the Santa Ana Winds, that they will fade away. Make sure you water them at night because your plants will die. Um, Not the point, but that's the side point, I guess. (laughs) 2A. You can write that in your notes. Um, (laughs) we, We know what this is like. We've seen this with our plants. And so we get the illustration that James is using here of saying, this is how life is, too. Some of us, um, have these plants that die very easily in the heat and in the wind and they're so precious and they're so fragile and you have to be watering them and you have to keep and sustain their life because it's going to fade away. And so James and Isaiah use this illustration of basically saying this is exactly how your life is. You you plant people know that like you're checking in on that plant like two, three times a day. Is it dying? Is it dying? Um, (laughs) This is how your life is. It will fade away. We don't know what's going to happen, even the rest of today. I pray that it doesn't happen, but some of you could be on your way home and be in a fatal accident. You don't know the extent of your life. You don't know its end. And so where is your investment? Where is your time spent? Where have you applied yourself? Has it been in the kingdom, or has it been in achieving the status that this world says is important? Again, the the low person is being exalted. The high person is being humbled. A.T. Robertson says this, The cross of Christ lifts up the poor and brings down the high. It is the great leveler of man. The cross of Christ lifts up the poor and brings down the high. It is the great leveler of man. 
Because before Jesus, he doesn't care if you're a rich young ruler. That he didn't buy his way into heaven. He cares about your heart, your sincere following of him. Have you given up everything to follow this Jesus? Or are you still holding on to some things in your life? Sincere following of Jesus, sincere surrender to him. The rich die suddenly here in this picture. The rich who is probably building up and amassing for himself wealth. He's doing well in business. He's, he's just closed another deal, and now his business is going to grow. It's going to double, and he's going to have much more income coming in. And James is saying, look, that doesn't matter. You're going to fade away. Um, there's even a story of this, a parable of this in the Gospels, where this rich man accumulates for himself wealth and stores up these things in his storehouses. And God comes and says, tonight your soul is required of you. All that work to store these things up, it wasn't storing up in the right place. It wasn't accumulating eternal wealth. It was accumulating transient, temporary wealth here on earth. It is all too easy for us to lose sight of what's really valuable in this world. The temporary satisfaction that comes from wealth or riches or status does not last eternally. And it will not fulfill us. We see warning after warning after warning of that in Scripture. And for good reason, because we as Christians have a hard time digesting this truth. Jesus, I know that you say that wealth isn't going to satisfy, but I know what this world is saying, and it doesn't look like that's true. And so I'd rather borrow what the world says is true and put my hope and my faith in this wealth, in this temporary satisfaction. Although you wouldn't explicitly pray that, that might be how our lives are acting out. Do we believe what God says when he says, let the lowly boast in his exaltation and let the rich boast in his humiliation because in the kingdom of heaven, this is reversed. The ones that we see as high, as lofty, as valuable, that is not what is valuable in the kingdom of heaven. It is those who are humbled, the poor, the ones who come to Jesus as children. Those ones are the ones inheriting the kingdom of heaven. And so, brothers and sisters, let this be a wake-up call for all of us that we should not place value or status in what this world sees as important and that this world sees as fulfilling, but rather place that in what God says is fulfilling. Don't be distracted by this world's measure. Find yourself in what God measures wealth and what God measures poverty. Verse 12. It is only the one who endures that is blessed. That's point three. It is only the one who endures that is blessed. This is another harrowing thing from James, um, that the one who endures is the one who is going to receive blessing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Uh, this, this verse opens with a word. And again, we're going to be jumping back in our minds, probably, as we see this word blessed. You're going to jump back to the Beatitudes, right? This sounds a lot like a Beatitude. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Here, James says, blessed is the one who does what? Endures trials. Blessed is the one who endures trials. Some of us need to hear that this morning. Blessed are you when you endure trials, when you pursue Jesus even in the midst of hopelessness, like these Biola students felt. 
even in the midst of difficulties. Blessed are you when you endure those trials. Some of you may have heard a definition for this word blessed as happy. The, the Greek word is makarios, and it can mean happy. I would highly encourage you to not use that definition. Do not replace the word happy for blessed. Uh, a, a really good, easy one that I found... Um, Sorry, let me back up. Let me explain that. Uh, the reason is because, like, uh, we have all these things in our culture of what happy is and what happiness means, and we're using and borrowing a cultural term that doesn't mean what it meant back then. Uh, so if we say, like, happy is the man who does this, um, we know that ha- happiness is a temporary emotion that fades away. And even though you might be blessed, you might not be happy. Um, so here, uh, replace blessed with fulfilled. That's a really good one. If you don't recognize the word blessed, think fulfilled in your mind. Fulfilled is the man who endures trials. For in the end, he will receive the crown of life. The sense of God's approval is in much contrast to the man described in 9-11. He is, he is um, approving those who are enduring trials those who are staying faithful to the end. And those are the ones who are going to be blessed. Those people who, who get thrown in some difficult situations. And I know that there are trials in this room. I know of many of them in this room, the difficulties that, that we go through as Christians. And brothers and sisters, I want to say, find your hope in Jesus. In the midst of these trials, don't find your hope in temporary alleviation, but find your hope in Jesus. Not trying to satisfy or fill that gap but allowing him to fill you because if you are high and you are humbled, you should boast in that exaltation because you will be in a much better situation in the kingdom of heaven. These trials are presented to us to test our faith, to test our endurance, and to allow us to rest in the joy that is found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. So rest in that place. Blessed are you. Fulfilled are you when you endure trials. This does not mean, by the way, like a faultless endurance. Many of you have been a person for a while, and you know that you are a sinner. And you know that full well. Uh, You know that you sin and that you slip up and that you fall. What God is looking for from us is a faithful endurance and a falling forward. Basically saying, like, you are going to slip up. Where are you going to turn when you slip up? Who are you going to pursue when you slip up? Are you going to try to cover it? Are you going to try to lie about it? Or are you going to fall back into the arms of God and say, Dad, I messed up. I need your forgiveness. I need you. This is a faith that perseveres in the love of God who promises life. A faith that perseveres in the love of God who promises life. Trials shouldn't throw us off and say, you know what, this is difficult, and I know that God said that he was good, and how can a bad thing happen? That should be flipped so on its head. God is holy. How do good things happen? You are a terrible sinner, and God is a holy God. How are blessings happening in your life? How do you have a home or a family, or or how do you have um, the ability to come to church on a Sunday morning? How are you allowed this? In the presence of a holy God, it is simply by his grace and by his mercy and by his love for you that he has blessed you in this way that you do not deserve, that I do not deserve. 
This is God's blessing. This is God's reaching through to us and saying, I know that you don't deserve this, yet good things are still going to befall you. Wow. How does this happen in this world? How do good things happen? James' overall purpose is to encourage believers to endure trials so that they might be blessed. Encouraging believers to endure trials so that they might be blessed. We know there's persecution in this community. We know there's difficulties. We know that people are being pushed out of society. And so we know that what they need is to endure trials. They need to move through this because God's blessing comes at the end for those who endure faithfully. They didn't need to temporarily leave themselves of this. They didn't pray for the trials to go away, but rather they were being tested through them that ultimately they might be fulfilled in the end. Notice how God does this, though, with these trials. It says that those who endure trials will be blessed. It doesn't say that he pulls them out of them and is like, let's take you out of the trial because then that's better. Rather, he's using the trial to basically, like a refiner's fire, test their faith and encourage them to rely solely on him. That's why the lowly should boast in their exaltation. Because in that place where they're going through trials and difficulties, their only reliance is Jesus. And they rely on him. It's a great paradox to rejoice in trials. It's kind of like not what a trial is. You don't really find a lot of people who are like, yay, someone's dying in my family. That doesn't make any sense. And so what James is getting at is basically like, praise God you're going through a difficult time because he's drawing you to himself. And in drawing you to himself, he's making you a more solid, more firm believer who is now steadfast in his grace. You have been drawn to the giver of life, the sustainer of all things. And in his presence, you are being sustained. You are being made whole. You are being made new. Apart from his presence, there is not life. And so in trials, when you're drawn to him, praise God for that. Praise God that you're drawn into his presence and that in that place you are finding life. Paradoxes are often occurring in scripture. Uh, It's a little bit confusing to describe what a paradox is, so G.K. Chesterton helped us with that. He says, a paradox is truth standing on its head shouting for attention. Basically, look, that's not... Basically, he's saying, like, truth is telling you this is what's real, not what you believe is real. This is what's true, not what you believe is true. Truth standing on its head, shouting for attention. This is how things actually work. Now, you might be thinking, what kind of rewards are we talking about here? Uh, What kind of rewards are we going to be receiving Um, We see this crown of life here. We don't really know entirely what that means. But what kind of rewards is the believer going to receive? Because we know the streets in heaven are paved with gold. So money is not going to mean anything. So what is the reward going to be? Sorry. Mitten says, uh, Mitten, who's a scholar, it's a weird name, I know. He says, the rewards would be only that of which a true Christian would enjoy. The rewards would be only that of which a true Christian would enjoy. It wouldn't be something 
temporary or fleeting or things that we would in this world ascribe value to, but would rather be something eternal and lasting, and a true Christian would enjoy it, would find joy in those rewards. We see a crown of life here. And uh, again, maybe there's a couple like echoes back in your mind to what this crown of life is like. I put two two cross references there in your notes, First Corinthians nine twenty five and Revelation two ten. Those both kind of describe a little bit more of this crown of life idea and what that is. Uh, we think of crowns as like royalty has these gold crowns, um, and they have jewels in them, and they're beautiful and they're shiny. And it's awesome. That's not what James is talking about here. James is talking about what a winner in the Olympics would win, what a, a runner would win in a race, would be like this kind of a wreath crown. Um, think of like, if you know much of Greek culture, think of that kind of crown a little bit. Um, this is the kind of crown that James is talking about. Not that it's super important for the passage, but maybe helps us get the picture a little bit better. That's the kind of crown that he's talking about. In order to achieve this, in order to attain this, you must endure faithfully through trials. And it is only the one who endures that is blessed. It's only the one who endures that is blessed. You don't get to pull out. You don't get to say, you know what, I I enjoyed being a Christian for a little bit, but this is difficult. And I didn't sign up for a hard time. I signed up for a good time. That's not what the kingdom of God works like. It's not how it is. In fact, when people were starting to follow Jesus in the New Testament, he would clearly tell them, if you want to follow me, you must give up all that you have. You must lay down your life, pick up your cross, and follow me. Be prepared to die. Your life is over. Your life is now found in Jesus. Your goals, your pursuits, your dreams, apart from Jesus, now have no value, no merit in the kingdom of heaven. Your life is hidden with Christ. Your life is found in him. And we don't see this as like, oh man, I don't get to do the things I want to do anymore. Rather, it's this joyous experience that like the parable of the man who found a a pearl of great price in the field sells all that he has and in great joy purchases the field because he has found something of much more value than what he had had previously. His money he counts as loss. His, His things that he had determined were of value is now not important at all and he doesn't regret it. He's not like, I don't know if I should do this. He sells it all, buys the field, and now knows he possesses this great reward. This is a paradox for us in this world today. It's a paradox. I put a quote there in the bottom of um, your notes at the end of point number three. It says this. Try as we might by our appearance, performance, or social status to find self-verification for a sense of being somebody, we always come up short of satisfaction. Whatever pinnacle of self-identity we achieve soon crumbles under the pressure of hostile rejection or criticism, introspection or guilt, fear or anxiety. It's in your notes if you want to reread it. He's basically saying the things that we think are going to satisfy and fulfill us are going to fall short. If it's not one of these things, it's the other. The things that we deemed valuable in this world are going to let us down. It's not going to be fulfilling. Although you might find temporary distraction from your trials or your difficulties in things of this world, it ultimately will not last and it will not bring fulfillment. Don't settle for the the things of this world when God has promised you eternity. Don't settle for fame when God has promised you glory. 
when you find yourself in the furnace of suffering, remember that God is good, that he is sovereign, and that he knows what he is doing. God is good, he is sovereign, and he knows what he is doing. Uh, There's a story in the Old Testament in a book called Habakkuk. Um, It's in the Minor Prophets. Uh, Many people might not have read it or or know the story full well, so I'll just explain it really quickly. Habakkuk sees his people, the people of Israel, and he sees the sin that they're in and how they're not following the Lord, and he is mourned. He is saddened, and so he prays to God, and he says, God, how do you allow this stuff to happen? How do you allow sin to increase and the profaning of your name to increase? How is this happening? And in Habakkuk, he like, gets cut off in the middle of this first chapter and God interrupts him and says basically Habakkuk if you knew what I was doing in this world then you'd understand I have a plan much bigger than you see and he starts to lay out a little bit of this plan I think that it is so difficult for us in this world to be in the middle of a trial because we only see the trial and we can't see the full picture This is why so many believers throughout history have written down how God has been faithful to them in journals or in books. Because in the middle of trials, we are clouded by the difficulty that's going on. We see this, we're like, this is all that there is. There is never any hope. There is never any grace. There is never any peace. This is the only thing that happens. And God is like, do you not realize what I'm doing? I'm using this trial to sharpen your life, to draw you closer to me, and ultimately to widen his kingdom. If we saw and understood the whole plan of God in the middle of trials, maybe we would be more content with what God is doing. But rest in this and understand this in trials. God is sovereign. He is good. He knows what he's doing, even if it might not seem like that. James, in this section, addresses two Christians who look at their spiritual identity. He looks at their spiritual identity and he measures their significance. The one who appears exalted in this world is the one who's humbled. And the one who appears low in this world is the one who's exalted. Because in the kingdom of God, these things work differently. Matthew 6.24 tells us we cannot serve both God and money so my last two points, this one is, what is your measure? What is your measure? Is it wealth, beauty, success, or work? Is that your measure? Is what we're using to determine our value and our significance and our fulfillment found in what the world says is good or what God says is good? Christians must always always evaluate themselves by spiritual standards and not material standards. We can't sit here and compare ourselves to other people and what they have and say, I wish that I had more, because then it would be enough. Rather, we must be looking at God and saying, this, this is where satisfaction is found and contentment is found. You are enough. We must establish and propagate such a standard that says spiritual matters are more significant than material matters. Spiritual wealth is more significant than material wealth. I tell you, a huge stealer of these things is social media. You get on social media and you look at your friends and you're like, wow, they're on vacation again. 
Or, wow, they are in this place and they didn't invite me. Or, wow, this person is doing a to-be-honest and I should also do a to-be-honest and now I got hurt. Um, to-be-honest is a thing that the kids do. They post TVH, question mark, and then they send each other honest things. And it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> do not do that. You should be honest with people all the time. <laughs> it's not a, an occasional thing. Um, yeah. Don't be looking at man for your approval. Don't be looking at man for your satisfaction or your worth. Look to God for that. Rest on, rely on God. Allow him to be your satisfaction and your contentment. Not what man says. Not what man has deemed as important. Not in getting the boy or the girl you like to say that they honestly have a crush on you. That is not the goal. That is not the goal. The goal is to rest in Jesus Christ and in him alone. So last point, place your hope in God. Sincerely love him and endure trials through the work of the Spirit, support of the church, and devotion to his work. Place your hope in God. Sincerely love him and endure trials through the work of the Spirit, support of the church, and devotion to his work. You and I were created as needy people. Don't satisfy those needs with material significance, material wealth. Satisfy those needs with God. Allow him to be the one fulfilling you, satisfying you, realizing your true identity is found in him. Rely on other brothers and sisters. That's what the church is here for. We see in Galatians 6, we are supposed to bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are in this community together to bear each other up, to encourage each other to ultimately bring people closer to Christ. We're supposed to be his body. So let's live that out, alleviate some of these trials of our brothers and sisters by pointing them back to Jesus and not saying, maybe you should go buy something that would make you happy. Point them to Jesus. Point your brothers and sisters to Jesus. Say, this is fulfillment. This is satisfaction. This is contentment. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for just the truth that your word relays to us. How, how we can be so blinded by this world and where our significance is found. But Lord, we see clearly in your word, we're wrong. Lord, help us to be humbled so that we might be exalted in your kingdom. Lord, if it means taking stuff away from us in this room, do it. Because you are more important and of more value than anything that we possess. Lord, draw us into your presence. Draw us close to you. Help us to find satisfaction, fulfillment, and contentment in you and in you alone. Be with us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.